Welcome to Azure Ability, a podcast for everyone interested in the art and science of developing solutions for the Microsoft Azure platform. Each show brings insight from the folks who know Azure best, including the cloud solution architects who help Microsoft's leading clients devise the most innovative and interesting solutions on the planet, as well as the engineers and program managers who build Azure itself. Listen in and you'll be sure to speed your journey into the cloud. And now your host, Lewis Berman. Hello, and this is Lewis Berman, and welcome to another edition of Azure Ability Podcast. I think that's the way I'm going to say it. I'm still trying to figure out how I talk, to be quite honest. So anyway, this is a very special edition because we're going to talk March Madness and AI. And if the stars had all aligned correctly, we would have been talking this a week ago or two weeks ago or maybe even a month ago. Probably a month ago would have been even better, but it was quite hard to get together. But we have Laura Dell and Anthony Franklin here, who I'll introduce in a little bit, the right sort of people to help you do really good with March Madness next year. And even though we have a full year in front of us to prep for it, I think we can probably occupy that entire year. So anyway, Laura Dell is, am I saying the right word? Am I saying E-D-E-L-L-L? You are saying it correct, like the singer, Adele. Wow, very good. I usually screw up on names and then people beat me up off mic. So anyway, she's a senior data scientist on our national CSA team. And much dear to my heart, she's a budding astronomer, amateur astronomer, who has an honest-to-goodness astrograph, which we'll explain what that is. But, you know, we're supposed to talk March Madness, but I have to tell you, I would very much prefer to geek out over astronomy. So, But we're going to push through that. And then Anthony Franklin, who is a data scientist on our one commercial partner national team. And he, very importantly, he played college football. He was NCAA ref. And much more importantly than all that, because, you know, wow, we are running a Lewis. podcast. And we want to do. <laughs> you also pronounced my last name correctly, right? Franklin, like the $100 bill. Wow. That was wow. amazing. I'm in Philadelphia, so we know how to Franklin, right? <laughs> exactly. And Ben, that is. And that's my cousin, by the way. Uh, duh. <laughs> duh. I knew that. So I was going to say the one thing that you did, which pleased me is the most, is that I, I've done a bunch of podcasts and people invariably have people walk into the room and make noise. And apparently you've put up a sign on your door saying recording. Holy moly, we're official, even though we are in three physical locations. So anyway, what the hell is March Madness? I'm mad. Tell me about it. <laughs> Anthony? Okay. So yeah, I'll kick this off, right? First, March Madness is probably the most exciting time of the year for most sports fans, especially if you love basketball. Second, it is the (laughs) moment of truth that every kid that wants to play basketball, especially on the collegiate level, dreams of. It's a winner go home, winner takes all. You got two, three weeks of just getting out of class, going all in, traveling all over, eating steak most nights. Until you win the thing, <laughs> whoever brings home the championship for the next two months, you can do whatever you want. Whatever. So, just you want. to be clear, I, I want to eat steak at home, even though I'm not on one of the teams. Is that okay, or is that strictly forbidden? Well, yeah, we'll, we'll let you do it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Wow, that's excellent. Well, and unfortunately, what, my wife won't let me, but if I tell her that March Madness is on, she usually leaves me alone for those three <laughs> weeks. <laughs> And of course, we're here not just to talk about March Madness per se, but we're here to talk about gaming the system using artificial intelligence, right? About doing it better than the next guy or gal. 
Right? Exactly. And, you know, the probability of hitting a perfect bracket at the end of March Madness is really one in 128 billion. And that's conservatively. So, I mean, this is no easy feat, but I feel like the approach we've come to has, you know, bridged us into sort of this 90th percentile, meaning pretty darn close, maybe not perfect, but pretty darn close. And that's because there's always upsets. There's always the underdog, as I'm sure we saw this year. Yeah. Analytics for NCAA March Madness is nothing new, right? But it's an exciting time to talk about it now because we're in this era of data collection and data is the new gold and and everybody's all concerned about the data. Mm -hmm. So our ability to perform different analyses now is greater than it's ever been before. And we're talking machine learning on this, right? We're not talking like genetic programming or other artificial intelligence advanced things. Things that are accessible in theory to a lot of people listening to this podcast. Yes. And so like our goal approaching this was to take past tournament results and build and test models that would forecast the outcomes of the, the current or future division championships. So really all we're doing is taking old data from the past and applying it to predict out future data. So very, very straightforward. The question is, once you reveal all this stuff, are you just going to leave Microsoft and become like, you know, pros at this? I mean, from what we've prepped, listen, dear listener, I've learned all sorts of things about this. I'm pretty damn impressed. I mean, you're like doing a form of magic almost, right? I like to think so. This is my second time approaching this. I also have a fantasy football model. And I believe that Mm -hmm. part of the secret sauce is looking at players and coming up with player indexes for how they're going to play that day. So things like their social, their personal life. I mean, did they go out and kill somebody? You know, maybe that's going to affect gameplay (laughs) on that day. And coming up with a waiting for that. Don't kill people. (laughs) Note to self. (laughs) (laughs) Note to self. Yeah, yeah. Not not for any other reason than it affects your quality of March Madness. But But for those stats... Tell me a little bit more. So, no, no. For those statisticians out there, those gamers, I like to say, because I'm a gamer, console gaming, there's also this ELO rating system. So anybody who games understands what ELO is. And in theory, it's just understanding the relative skill level of all players in a zero-sum game. So we know that there's a winner, we know that there's a loser, and we need to iterate through you know, this relative skill level, who is considered great and who is considered maybe not as good. And so by applying this ELO rating system you know, of the likes of Nate Silver and others who really are proponents of it, We were able to take into account, you know, this more traditional rating system approach, but then combine that with, you know, like I said, this player social index, and then also something called a mean select rating score. And all that is, is looking at some really famous statisticians who have come up with metrics, Pomeroy, Sagarin. I mean, these are people that if you do March Madness and you you really come up with bracket predictions, you'll know who they are. And so it was this combination of these three things that allowed us to come up with this overall approach that we took. I know that was a lot Excellent. of statistics. That was very well said. <laughs> but no, and, and no, 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 no. We we actually need you to geek out more, not less. For on sure. Excellent. And, and so. let me take it a step further, right? Because the analysis can go much further beyond than just the skill level and the on-court impact. But me being a former student athlete and involved with the NCAA as well, we're also very interested in how can we compensate student athletes, right? In a very quantitative and a very justified, incredible manner because that's such a big topic right now, right? They're, they're generating not only buzz with social media presence, but from marketing and sponsorships. Is there a way that we can help to quantify and, and propose a potential revenue sharing model Data analytics can help us with that as well. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah, you think about some of so these players. So that would be a league on top of the league almost? Is that what, what you're meaning? Repeat that. 
is that like a league on top of the league or a layer on top of it effectively because you want to want to leverage what's already going Certainly. on? Certainly. Yeah, no, the, the infrastructure for this is primarily already in place. There's a governing body, right? The NCAA and then the individual okay. institutions who provide some level of set of services and, and financial compensation in the form of scholarships already, right? So what ways can we expand upon that? Leveraging all the current infrastructure that's there. Just, I think that what's, what's short is a very justifiable, credible way of taking current revenue streams and, and being able to distribute some of those. I think most of what has been proposed okay. has all been very outside and willy-nilly sources. So just another idea. Hi, my name is Gretchen Huebner, and I'm a founder of Codable. Did you know that kids who are introduced to programming early on are more likely to pursue it when they get to college? Codable is an introduction to programming used in over half of U.S. elementary schools. I started Codable because when I was in high school, I had the chance to take a programming class, but I didn't take it because I would have been the only girl. I wanted to give kids the chance to decide if programming is something that they're interested in before they get to high school. Help your kids learn to code. Get started at Codable.com. That's Codable with a K for kids. So let's talk a little bit about the toolkit. This is the Azure Ability Podcast, so we like to talk about Azure and bring it around. How can this be realized in a Microsoft Azure sort of sense? Sure. This was all applied or brought into Azure, and so there are several ways that this could be approached. The way that we approached it initially was using what's called the Data Science Virtual Machine, and that's because it offers you a lot of the machine learning and statistical toolkits out of the box. So it makes it very easy to get started. You request one of these virtual machines through the Azure portal, you log in through some type of remote desktop capability, and boom, you're in an environment where all of the libraries, all of the packages, whether it be in Python, whether it be R, are already set up for you. So your barrier to entry is very low. So that was our approach going into this. But it's now been extended on with something called Azure Databricks, which allows us to do a lot of the data pre-processing and that data engineering. So really setting up the data frames and the tables that we want to look at, because there is a ton of data out there when it comes to NCAA, and it goes back many years. And so you need a really beefy engine to be able to compute and process through that to, to prepare it for machine learning modeling. And all this data is free public data or is there a mixture of free and uh, paid data? It is all publicly available, which is great. Scraped from various websites and or already put together for you by folks who've gone down this path previously. So yes, all publicly yeah. available. And to expand on that too, right? If we talk about the ability to process all that information, low barrier of entry to get access to the tools, let's not forget the fact that we can use some of our data services like Azure Blob, which is where we store the majority of our data as it consistently updates and continues to expand. Very cheap storage, even for us data scientists who make a million dollars a year. <laughs> oh, I wish. <laughs> God, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a little upset for you that it tops out. There. You know, I mean, you, you, you sound very, very competent. So, okay. So let's back up a bit, right? It is... Uh, Lori, you say there's all this fun tools and stuff ready to go. and But, you know, I don't know anything, right? Actually, technically, I literally don't know anything. I, I know how to write AI programs, like genetic programs from scratch. But I don't know necessarily how to marshal all the various details of playing with Databricks and, you know, machine learning and stuff. So how do I get to that first, second, and third step? And I know you talked about the possibility of creating an actual series around doing this, right? Could you explain that too? Sure. 
Because there is a lot involved in this analysis, starting from just understanding the data to all the way down into actually applying machine learning models to the data, we thought that a series of these different podcasts would be a really good approach because then we could walk you through, for example, the first level, you know, me coming into this, I knew very little about NCAA. And so I really wanted to spend some time analyzing the data, much like a, just a traditional analyst would in Excel. So pulling in all of these data sources and then starting to segment by just things that looked interesting to me or perhaps that I had researched. So for example, you know, segmenting it by, you know, those who were in the final four last year, bracketing them by the seed in which they are listed, looking at them by team and by win and loss. And so just various slices that you would do during any analysis. That was one approach. And so uh, I used a set of tools to do that. Specifically in this case, I started with R. R is a scripting language that, you know, a lot of students coming out of school are already learning while in school so they can script in R, but it does require that skill set. It is a scripting language. But then I, I took that and augmented it as I got into the machine learning pieces of this with Python, Python being my favorite. I know it's philosophical. If you're an R person, we can get battle it out on whether, whether or not, you know, I'm choosing the right one over you. Of course I am, Python. But regardless, you know, that was another skill set and another approach to getting this end-to-end modeling view that we have. So, you know, that's really why we're suggesting to have this as a, a set of series to go through this. Hopefully that answered your question in a very roundabout way. No, that's great. And we'll have to put a link in the text about how to proceed and think about what's, what's going to come along with this. So I want to put this in perspective to the whole notion of, you said like 90% was a number thrown out mm-hmm. before. How important is it to go from 80% or 70%, I, I, you know, like sort of good, maybe slightly better all the way to superlative? Yeah. What is the real world effect of that? So that's a great question. So when you're looking at probabilistic computation, so basically we're looking to say team A, Virginia, has a X percent chance to beat team B. So we're just looking for those probabilities to be able to meet that benchmark that's being set. When we're looking to do that, I think, especially as we apply this from a model perspective, it becomes very important to really understand what the data is, is telling you. And so when I say that, I mean... For example, a lot of the data set that fed into this was provided by someone named Massey, and he comes up with a composite ranking system over time that is well known in March Madness bracket projections. And so it served as a destination for checking all the other rating systems that were available out there in terms of as I started to apply logistic regression to them. And so it gave me a baseline knowing very little about the actual, you know, business of NCAA, if you will, unlike Anthony, to to just look at it from a pure numbers perspective. You know, what are they over time? How can I serve this, you know, looking at what other experts are saying? And what is my model performat in terms of some of the errors and averages out when we look at log loss, which is just an evaluation metric we look at, you know, at the end of modeling. And so I think Anthony will be able to sort of dive in on, you know, what it means from more of the NCAA practical standard, but that's how I'd approach it from more of the statistical standard. Yeah, for sure, right? You want to understand what is your objective behind the bracket in general. Typically, if your objective is to win your bracket for fun or if it's to win for certain financial gains, those error percentages that we just discussed really makes very different impacts, right? Let's be clear, right? The real behemoth of analytics in sports is Vegas, And they have accuracy that blow (laughs) your mind, right? When they set lines and they set different ratios behind what are the expected win rates, et cetera, that you can bet against, 
they're at a very, very high and elite level. So a lot of that depends on what your objective is. But if you're doing it for fun, similar to how Laura and I are doing it, (laughs) perhaps you could be a little more lenient on some of that. But there are a lot of intangibles that can't be quantified. And so errors will be inherent and and always exist. They exist in models anyway. But when it comes to March Madness, part of the reason why the word madness is in there, that's going to have to be a given in some sense. Hi, my name is Megan Hochstetter, and I am the Elementary Education Program Manager at Code.org. Code.org is a nonprofit dedicated to expanding access to computer science in schools and increasing participation by women and underrepresented minorities. Our vision is that every student in every school has the opportunity to learn computer science, just like biology, chemistry, or algebra. Code.org provides the leading curriculum for K-12 computer science in the largest school districts in the United States. And Code.org also recognizes the annual Hour of Code campaign, which has engaged 10% of all students in the world. Code.org is supported by generous donors, including Microsoft, Amazon, Facebook, Google, the Infosys Foundation, and many more. Learn more and join the movement by visiting www.co.org. Hey, I like anything that has the word madness in it. True story, the sticker on the back of my laptop says evil mad scientist. So I am all for I love that. My sticker says Ash Villain because I live in Charlotte, North Carolina. (laughs) So you see, our laptops are friends already. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Well, you see, that's good. So since we're going to be all friends, you have to tell me all about astrographs. And, And for those of you who don't care about astronomy, Tough. <laughs> so, so astronomy, as some people know, is an absurd pursuit, like some sports and stuff that just grabs people passionately. And they, you know, they go to incredible lengths to look at extremely dim things that lots of other people may have looked at even. So tell me about your astrograph and I swear we'll get back to it. <laughs> I went to school. What is an astrograph firstly? Yeah. Also. So I went to school for quantum physics and, and part of that line of studying had a whole a very deep side to just understanding physics from an astral perspective. And so an astrograph is essentially a camera. It is a telescope that allows you to take pictures essentially in its most simple form. You know, I follow a Newtonian line of thinking and essentially when you want to start taking pictures of asteroids and meteors and comets and other objects in the night sky on a much wider wider focal plane, you know, big, but something that is very, very small, you know, you, you need to take pictures that have a lot less distortion in a very dark world and to be able to see that. So uh, that's what an astrograph allows you to do. Take photographs of a huge area of the sky in a nutshell. That's great. So let's put this particular podcast in perspective. Today is April 10th. Today, they announced they just took a picture, an honest-to-goodness picture of a black hole. They happened to take it with radio telescopes and a cluster of them, but they still took a picture. So it's very suspicious to talk about about such things. But it turns out I was at the Northeast Astronomy Forum yesterday. Is today? No, is today Monday? I'm like, no, it was on Sunday. God, this week goes so (laughs) fast. So uh, (laughs) my brain is spinning. And basically, Northeast Astronomy Forum is the largest astronomy convention in the world. And among other things, they have all sorts of things for sale. And I was sort of lusting after this 11-inch diameter astrograph from Celestron, 
that had a very, very fast focal ratio, F2.2. I'm not explaining what that means, but just say really, really good and sort of stuff. A little bit out of my price range. I was going to say, uh, how much was that bad (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm not going to say it. So the point is, I did see an honest-to-goodness $100,000 solar scope. (laughs) But the point is, when I grow up to become a data scientist and make an actual living, I want one of those. So, so anyway, let's bring it a bit back to AI. I think it's important that to know this is an application, mm-hmm. right? I think it's a very good application. I think a lot of people will be excited about it. And I, I certainly want to delve more in a future time into how to exactly. Do it. But AI is for a whole lot more. Could you give sort of a survey of what you might be able to use machine learning and AI tools like cognitive services in the Azure sense? Why people should be interested? Yeah, no, I, I think it's a, a perfect question because a lot of people have a, a, the same sort of examples in their head that maybe they've heard about, you know, classifying animals based off of, I've got a set of pictures. Is it a cat? Is it a, is it a dog? Those aren't really practical in a real world. I'm not saying sports ML is, but a lot more people can wrap their head around these types of predictions than they can, you know, why someone would want to, you know, predict out if it's a cat or a dog in a picture. In my real world, you know, I work on some amazing use cases. For example, you, you think of an HVAC company, and at least I did, and I don't think of them as maybe the most cutting edge, but it turns out, you know, they want to go in and, you know, when your air conditioner is broken by wearing body cams, you know, listen to the sound it's making and have that audio become how it's classified as whether it's not it's broken or not. So, I mean, these are things you can extend out, not just to images and pictures and to classification, but to, to sounds and to the world around us in this very experiential mixed media world that we live in today. And that opens up the range of things, if you imagine body cams and, and how they could be used. I mean, this is an, an HVAC company who wants to enable new you know maintenance folks to have the same power as those who've been doing it for 30 years in terms of that tribal knowledge. Well, now they can because these cams can then inform them on, hey, this is what's broken. Oh, by the way, I heard that the fan is also broken. So it makes them look like these, you know, machine learning masters. They already know what's wrong with it. I mean, imagine how much better that is than them taking apart your entire air conditioner and clanking around and still not really getting it right. This could be applied to cars. This can be applied to so many functional areas of our life. You know, it makes me, as you can tell, very excited about where we are today. Yeah, to follow up on that too, right? You you mentioned the cognitive services and and those abilities to use them in the different use cases, but let's not forget developing very accurate image recognition or image segmentation or audio recognition models is not an easy feat. It's not. So to be able to leverage the power of what Microsoft has already put together of years and years and millions and millions and billions of images and audio recordings used to train these services that are already pre-trained for you to use, That's a great step that gets you from zero to 10, gets you already to seven, as opposed to having to develop some of that on your own, which is very challenging and very costly for really any business or any statistician. Absolutely. Wow. We're starting to run out of time. So let's talk about two more things. Where does one start to learn about these things? And firstly, as a newbie and as a slightly less newbie. And then I'd like to have some sense of what do you think is coming down the pike in the next year. And we'll end it, of course, with just saying we're going to do something fun for March Madness for next year. (laughs) And we'll reveal it to you as time goes on. But 
Start start with the docs. So I'll give you my two cents of where you can learn. You know, there is a ton of resources online, EDX, these type of programs that are offered, a lot of them for free, where you can take an intro to data science or intro to artificial intelligence course, or even Microsoft now has a full on artificial intelligence schooling program that you can take and, and get certified in that'll really teach you the fundamentals all the way to the more advanced concepts, wow. which is really cool. You know, we have this university, if you will, approach to how we want to to train our, our new data scientists coming up. So yeah, there, there is a ton of resources that you can use online, including, you know, with Microsoft. Yeah, that, and then second, that school that she mentioned we'll, is right at... We'll include them in the links. Sorry, I was going to say, the school she mentioned is at aischool.microsoft.com. And one more follow-up to that is it's not only just for the data scientists or the practitioners of the world, but even for business analysts or, or even leadership role and C-level position individuals who want to understand more about the ethics, more about how to focus your business on leveraging more AI type capabilities. So there's a lot baked into there because we're really trying to get the world to understand not only the importance, but there are some challenges with AI and how to implement it. So AI school is pretty incomprehensive. Microsoft MakeCode brings computer science to life with fun projects, immediate results, and both block and text editors for learners at different levels. With MakeCode, students can build a cardboard air guitar, a magic wand, a milk carton robot, or play with MakeCode Arcade, a retro 80s game development platform, even make it rain chickens in Minecraft. Visit MakeCode.com to get started. So I'm going to ask you both to share links with me to put in the show notes for the show. And I encourage our listeners to check with the website. That'll be azureability.com. There's going to be some permalink, but you can get it off the the main azureability.com link. Also, there's stuff coming down the line. I, I mean, it is no underestimated statement to say that AI capabilities are doubling every year and more. It's an explosion. So what do you see coming down and not in a research sense, but in like a, you can talk about it to the public Azure AI sense. From my perspective, I think we're going to see a lot more usage of AI assistance in the home place and just throughout our life. And not just as a device that we have on a desk, but more built into the processes that we do every day that we don't even think about. You know, we go from our home to our car, car to work. Those things will carry with you as you have this who you are, you know, trailing with this AI assistant capability. I think that's going to definitely grow over time. I also think this support of this virtualized go-to health agent support agent, you know, customer facing AI agents is also going to grow and and really expand because today we have these bots and they're somewhat simplistic, but very soon we're going to have a much more detailed ability to carry on questions that tag onto each other hierarchically. So it's not just, do you have a, a document X? Yes, here you go. Okay, good. I'm hanging up. But more of these complex interaction types that we have as humans. And then lastly, as I mentioned with the mixed media, we're going to have a lot more of this integration between not just our vision capability and growing that, but also our audio capability. I mean, today I've already composed music, or not me, but my models have composed music based off of traditional music approach and structure. And so it's taking that, breaking that down and then creating new music from it. And so if you imagine just bridging that from an image perspective, now a sound perspective, with touch perspective, and that mixed media approach, I mean, really, you're going to see this whole five senses come together from from an artificial intelligence perspective, at least in my sense. Anthony? 
Let me follow up to that too, right? The number of use cases are countably infinite. And what I mean by that, right, is, is as Laura went through a few different examples, I want the world to understand that the vision and in order for us as people and as you know, a, a nation or, or can really execute on this, it's going to take the buy-in from so many people. And that's important because I really want to, and I'm really big on encouraging our youth and encouraging other people that are out in the industry who are interested in this there are so many use cases that need our help and support on, right? For instance, a very simple example to kind of break this down a little bit, you know, the, the difference between a book on a table and a book on a shelf are two different decisioning engines there, right? Might seem very simple to us, but the ability of what we're going to be able to do in the future, there's so much opportunity for other practitioners to learn and to get involved. So I use that hopefully as a beckoning call to really get people interested in this and and there's so many career possibilities, et cetera, to go on and on. And I just want to add to that, that I think it's really important, and Anthony touched on it a moment ago, with, you know, ethical AI and the importance that's going to become if you're not thinking about it, in that, you know, Gartner's projecting that by 2020, the growth in fake content, you know, AI-driven content as it exists today, is going to create this counterfeit reality. And for folks to be able to use AI to then detect it and help fomenting, you know, more of a digital trust is going to become so critical. Because as soon as we start distrusting all this content and, and this domination of false information... It just becomes, you know, you can see the trickle-down effect that has. And that's where the whole ethical AI is really going to come into play and how we apply these AI approaches in the future will become so important. And so, yeah, bridging that gap with our youth and the kids that are coming up today, those, you know, STEM programs, you know, the and all, you know, bringing the kids into this fold is going to become so important because they're the ones that are really going to share that voice and really bridge that ethical AI gap that we have. Yeah, let me make that a little more tangible, right? Sorry, let me add one more comment to that. So in 2015, Google initially released their facial recognition engine. This is not to just knock them, but this is more around the importance around the ethics and intentionality of any AI that we develop in the future. So back to this facial recognition engine, it was very clear and you can read the articles about it. So again, I don't want to get into a bashing session, but the engine's ability to identify facial expressions and races across light-colored people versus darker-skinned individuals significantly declined for darker-skinned individuals, significantly. In fact, one of the recognition engine actually reported when it saw an African-American person as ape. Let's let's wow. be 100% clear, right? Again, this is not Crazy. a knock to Google. This is a warning sign for any AI and the importance of the ethics and the intentionality. Again, imagine if that's used for loan origination, right? Whether you're trying to determine whether to give someone a loan and there's those biases that are set in there. We have to be very careful and these can get to a very slippery slope very easily. So that's an article that is currently out there if anyone wants to bing that and look it up. But just an example of how scary and slippery slope that some of this can get. Well, you have my head swimming. So I think we're going to end it there with just one thing. Firstly, I I hope you guys will come back and that we can expand upon this further, either as a podcast and or maybe also a a video. I want to do well at March Madness (laughs) next year. I want that extra superpower, you know, that people who don't have talented friends don't have. 
So maybe we will point some of our, our, our listeners to that. So thank you so very much. I have Laura Dell and Anthony Franklin with the name that I can apparently pronounce on the Azure Ability podcast. Do check out AzureAbility.com for links and other show info and whatever. And uh, thank, thank you so you much. for having yeah. us. It was very enjoyable. And I look forward to coming back. And absolutely, it'll be a proud moment in my heart to watch you win your March Madness bracket. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and I just want the world to know how much of a pioneer I'm, I am. You know, earlier I created a new word. My new word was incomprehensive, right? It's a combination between encompassing and comprehensive. So please wow. take that forward. Webster's, let's add that to the dictionary. Let's get this thing going. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's the only word I'm ever going to use again. So anyway, keep your software in the cloud, the Azure cloud. You've been listening to Azure Ability, a podcast for everyone interested in the art and science of developing solutions for the Microsoft Azure platform. Be sure to visit our website, azureability.com, for show notes, helpful links, and other episodes. We'd also love to receive your questions and comments. On behalf of your host, Lewis Berman, and the many friends of the podcast, thanks for listening. 